Hi, my friends who listen to futureprimitive.org. You are with an excited Joanna Harcourt Smith this morning. I am with Charles Eisenstein on the phone, and I have just read his uh, latest book, or the one before last, which is called The Ascent of Humanity, The Age of Separation, The Age of Reunion, and the Convergence of Crisis that is Birthing the Transition. Um, Charles Eisenstein also wrote a book uh, called The Yoga of Eating and recently a booklet called Transformational uh, Weight Loss. He also works one-on-one with people as a healer or rather as an agent of their own self-healing. So um, he says that he's pleased to communicate with anyone who approaches him with a sincere desire to communicate. So you can, uh, you can find out more about Charles Eisenstein at www.ascentofhumanity.com and you can even send him emails after this conversation. Charles, your bio is beautifully personal, so perhaps you would like to talk to us a little bit about your process. Well, you know, the process is ongoing. Uh, The bio on that website is probably about a year old, and so much has happened in that year. Yes. In some ways, it's probably obsolete or incomplete. Okay. Um, But I really can't separate my life from my work. Yeah. And like that, you know, the book, the subtitle that you spoke, The Age of Separation, The Age of Reunion, and the Convergence of Crises that is Birthing the Transition, like that is pretty much a map for my life. Right, you know, right. Going through an age of separation, and a personal age of separation, which uh, generates crisis of various sorts, you know, many crises altogether. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of those crises, after they converge into a singularity, you know, into a, a crisis moment yes. where you don't know what's on the other side, then, you know, you, then this happens to a lot of people, not just me, sure. but then you get pushed into a new world that you always sensed was there, but and you tried to find it, but it's not something you can find by trial. Right. Uh, it's something that you're born into, and so that, you know, that's what I've been through in the last... Well, I don't know how long, 10 years, sure. but, you know, the, you know in, in an intense way a few years ago. And I think that's what is happening to humanity also. Um, we, we have a, a transition of ages going on right now, and you know, the crises that are visiting our civilization, they're not just stuff that's happening. They're built in on a deep level to who we are, and they're the only thing that is going to make us into something that we are not yet, but which we can be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, speak about separation and the origins of separation. <laughs> yes. Well, the origins of separation, yeah, you know, I, I, I uh, had a conversation on the airplane the other day 
with uh, a man from Belarus. Yes. Uh, who spoke almost no English. So I had to kind of draw pictures. Yeah. And I drew, and I thought, okay, here's a cool idea, the, the acceleration of time. Mm-hmm. That many people are talking about these days. Exactly. You'll hear people talk about, hey, you know, the age of agriculture was you know, several thousand years. Mm-hmm. And the age of industry, the, the machine age, was several hundred years. Right. And the information age, that's several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, say three decades, 300 for industry, about 3,000 for agriculture, you know, more or less, depending on where on earth, but about it's a ballpark figure. And then so 3,330, and what age are we moving into now that's only going to last three years? Yes. And then three months, and then, you know, accelerating to the point where it reaches a turning point, a singularity, and what comes after that is so different from what we have now that it's, it's, it's more different qualitatively, or, or it's a quantum leap, you know, mm-hmm. different from the transition from agriculture to industry to, to information. It's something on a completely new plane. And so I thought, I thought about this, you know, and took it back in time even more. Uh-huh. 30,000 years. Okay, what about 30,000 years? Uh-huh. What age started then? Uh-huh. Well, it was the age of symbolic culture, by which I mean representational art, uh, representational language, you know, mm-hmm. language that has semantics, where words mean something instead of being something. And, you know, linguists and anthropologists, they debate how long ago language started. Yes. Um, and there's kind of the, the old camp and the new camp, you know, and the old camp thinks it's hundreds of thousands of years or more. The new camp says, no, it's really language as we know it today is only 30,000 years old. Right. And I, I tend to go along with the new camp for, well, the, some of the reasons are in the book, The Ascent of Humanity, but um, so let's just say 30,000 years, okay, that's symbolic culture. 300,000 years, give or take, mm-hmm. that's the age of fire. Three million years, that's the age of tools. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so each of these ages corresponds to an acceleration in human separation from nature, from just being. Um, so, for example, with, with the start at the beginning, you know, with stone tools, we introduced the first artificial objects into the universe. The first objects that you can look at and say, yeah, that's a man-made object. That's not something that, that happened through natural processes. That happened with intention. And so that's like the very beginning of a separate human realm. And then fire mm-hmm. was a new landmark because fire divides the world into two parts. There's the circle of the campfire, which is the domestic realm, and outside of that is the wild. Right. And so that, you know, that's another major step of this, what I call separation, you know, the division of the world into two realms, the human and the non-human, self and other. Yes. Um, then symbolic culture uh, mediates between us and the world by creating a system of labels. It's a, it's a whole other reality that we live in. Um, and it, and it words distance us from immediate reality. Uh, we see, we begin to see things as the label rather than as the actual thing itself. For, for a pre-linguistic person, it would be absurd to call two different blades of grass by the same name because they're obviously different. 
You know, they're two separate, unique beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's another step of separation. That agriculture, you know, domestication, we're actually making the world ours. We're mm-hmm. not just creating a separate human realm, but we're taking ownership over part of the world and, and controlling it and making other beings into, you know, subsidiary to humanity. Mm-hmm. And then next is industry, where we create not just a separate human realm, but a realm that's completely artificial, that is full of things that don't exist anywhere else except as human creations, you know, a world of right angles and, and concrete, you know, and, yes. and loud noises and moving faster than any muscles in the universe can move somebody. Um, all, all this is, is an intensification of separation. Mm-hmm. And the information age, the world becomes not only artificial, but but abstract. It's not even physical anymore. Right. It's, 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 it's data. It's information, you know, and people are sitting plugged into these computers living almost completely in the world of, of symbol, um, pixels, uh, bytes. And so that's the, the, the trajectory of separation right. on, on, a, on a collective level. And the same kind of separation is, is mirrored uh, within us as well. Right, right. And it has a social dimension, it has a technological dimension, it, it, it's reflected in science, in art, in politics, and everything, you know. And so what the book, what I do in the book is, is I trace the origins of the crises of our time to this deep root of separation. Exactly, um, yes. That's it in a long nutshell. Yes, in a, in a nutshell. Well, one of the uh, of things that you propose to um, help us heal ourselves from separation is the concept of play. And you speak about how children play, and uh, then it makes me think that um, children love to play with each other. So um, talk about uh, how we can relearn to play from our children? Mm. I think through children we we can become reacquainted with the spirit of play. Play is one of the things that I have trouble describing or defining. Yes. When we're in a state of play, like, there's certain characteristics that it has. You know, it's it's spontaneous, it's creative. Uh, You basically, when you play, you, like, when when I see children playing, Here's the essence of it. They're actually creating a world. Uh-huh. And I think play is world creation. And childhood play prepares us to create worlds. And so when we take away play from children, then we're taking away their, their, uh, their opportunity to practice creating worlds. And then they become consumers of consumers of worlds instead of creators of worlds. Mm-hmm. When, a, when a child's playing by himself, you know, he's, 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 he or she has something going on in the imagination Yes. where, you know, this block is a truck, you know, this is that, that is that. Um, when children play together, they play, you know, let's pretend they, they create these worlds. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to do that too as adults. But we've become afraid to do that, and we've 
forgotten how to do that. And we're, you know, very, very many people are very uncomfortable with uh, open-ended situations. Yeah, ask, ask some more. I'm kind of yeah, okay. playing along with this. Okay, okay. Well, I'm interested in the part where um, you say art became slavery, art became a profession, mm. and uh, I would equate art to playing. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, art, I think it, it did kind of originate in playing, you know, you have some, wow, here's some colors, you know, mm -hmm. here's, a, here's a cool thing, you know, what can I make out of it? And there's, play is not, I mean, I guess there's an element of, of, there's certainly intentionality in play, but there's not really a sense of control, not controlling in play. Yeah. And art, too, I think that as artists we have a sense that we're um, receiving something or something is being created through us. Mm -hmm. I think one thing I, I think I mentioned in, in there is, is that primitive quote-unquote artists, you know, when, when they say they start off with a block of wood or a block of ivory, right. they would see themselves as uh, uncovering the form that was already in there Beautiful. rather than making it into that form as if they were, say, a sculptor, you know. Mm -hmm. So for me, play, I associate it with this feeling of being uh, an agent of something greater than myself that's using me to bring something into being. Uh -huh. And because play is easy. Play is easy. Easy, yeah. It's, it's kind of the default state of a child, you know. So the child is, is left without any kind of external coercion. The child will play. I don't think that changes all of a sudden magically when we become adults. I think that our nature also is to play and to to do an easy, like, that's a really loaded word. Mm -hmm. I mean, not making efforts. I mean, a child at play will play to, to the point of exhaustion, you know. But it's not, there's no internal struggle, I guess. There's no uh, self-forcing. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yes. Self-forcing is one of these interior mirrors of our separation from nature, you know, where we exert force upon nature to mold it into the, the, the shape of our desires mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. or to create uh, security to control the world. Mm -hmm. we, we apply force to it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the personal or the internal aspect of that is applying force to ourselves to fight nature. Nature, uh -huh. in the internal sense, is desire. Uh -huh. So the way that we apply force internally is to threaten ourselves with the thing that we fear most. To blackmail ourselves. Yeah, which is abandonment. That's how we do it with children, you know. You, that, that's what pretty much any young mammal fears the most. Yeah. To be abandoned by the mother, which is why baby mammals will call out piteously for their mothers, even though that'll probably attract predators. And and so if you want to control a child, you do it with uh, conditional acceptance and rejection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're good, you're bad, you know. Yeah, yeah. They accept you. Um, and the child would... would 
wants so much to be accepted that he'll do almost anything. Sure, sure. And then we grow up and we internalize these, this conditional acceptance and rejection, you know, as, as guilt and, and, and shame. And so we live, many, many people, especially in the West, like live this lifelong quest to earn their own approval. Yeah. To, and, and often that means, as it did in childhood, to fight, to resist, to deny desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you're good. You're, you're in control. Uh, you're not selfish. You know, you're not indulging your desires, you know, all of this stuff, which is a good thing if you believe that desire is, is bad. That, uh, in other words, that human beings are essentially sinful, essentially mm-hmm. depraved, as, as John Calvin spoke of, you know? Yes. Um, and that belief that our essential nature is bad, that it will drive us to, to harm others, that is consistent or part of the ideology of agriculture, which says, you know, nature is bad. If you, if you don't exert control right. over nature, then you're going to have weeds, you know, and the wolves are going to come. And so we have to pull up the weeds, and we have to kill the wolves, and we have to maintain this, this artificial realm through, through labor, through force. And I could, you know, relate that to the Garden of Eden myth, you know, and when um, we began to, to apply this good and evil to the things of nature, um, we were expelled from the garden and we had to toil. Right. Uh, so, the, uh, this kind of self-control and this kind of war against the self is, I think, it's fundamentally uh, unplayful. Yeah. And, and play is to return to a, a child, childlike state where we do not fight ourselves, but we're in a flow of creativity. Mm-hmm. That feels really good. Yes. Now, sometimes when I, when I speak of things like this, people will accuse me of advocating hedonism. Uh, and good. Uh, pardon me? I said good. Yeah. <laughs> but, right, and hedonism, like, why is that a bad word, you know? That just means somebody who indulges their, their desires. Exactly. But, but what, what people don't realize is that we've been cut off from our desires for so long that we really don't even know what we really want. We don't really know what it is to feel good. And so we accept these very poor substitutes for the things that we really want. For example, what we really want, what would really make us feel good and joyful and complete would be, would be you know, intimacy, community. But lacking that and being so lonely, we will um, accept whatever substitute is available could be uh, you know, food. Yeah. You know, people eat because they're lonely or they shop because they're lonely. Yes, and yes. That, and so that's not, that, oh, you know, that, that, that doesn't, people say, see, that proves, you know, that desire is this, this terrible enemy and that in order to be civilized, to be thin, to be ethical, to be moral, you have to control that and limit desire because look what it does. As soon as you let go of desire, you eat everything in the refrigerator and then you go and buy your 15th pair of shoes. <laughs> but still, that's substitute desire. Mm-hmm. It's not really desire. That's, those are just symptoms that we're cut off from desire because we buy all the stuff, eat all the stuff, consume all the stuff that we don't even need, you know? Yes. So that's, yeah, that's mm. where play takes me. So I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You said nature is desire. 
and I would love if you could elaborate on that. Our connection, yeah. our lost connection with nature, our connection with nature, and nature and desire. Yeah, I'm thinking of this, like, the part of ourselves, when I said that, I was thinking, you know, the part of ourselves that's domesticated, and the part of ourselves that's wild. Like, desire is definitely on the wild side. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said desire is nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could take it farther than that, too. Desire, take it pretty deep. Uh-huh. The book I'm writing now is called Sacred Economics. Uh-huh. And it's about the uh, universal and cosmic nature of the gift and how that applies to human societies, the money system, which is changing, and what, and, well, I won't go into all of it now, but, but the idea that, that we are beings of need, that we are in the conception of, of, of ourselves as, you know, separate from other people, we are fundamentally incomplete. Buddhism would, would say, you know, we're not, you know, Buddhism speaks of interdependency, um, but really what it's talking about is, you could call it interbeingness, not interdependency. It means for our, our very existence, yes. we depend on our relationships. We are our relationships. Yes, I like that. And, you know, these are relationships that have been cut off through the process of separation, relationships to nature, to community, you know, leaving us as these discrete, separate selves described by Descartes, you know, mm-hmm. or in economics, you know, that... that try to rationalize, try to maximize rational self-interest, right? These separate, and I, I fundamentally, I don't need you, I don't need anybody else uh, as long as I can exploit you or control you or manipulate you into giving me what I, what I need. But actually, we are not these separate beings. The, the, the state of separateness is, is a phase, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we're reaching the turning point today where we're coming back into into uh, union. But because we are, because we life in this world, in this material universe, is essentially a, a sojourn of separation. It's a, it's a trip that we go on to, uh, as, as being separate. That means that we have needs that can only be met from outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We are, as fleshly separate beings, we are... We are incomplete. We have needs, for example, for food. Yes. You know, for water, for air, for 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 hugs, for touch. You know, for for lots of things. We have these needs. Yes. Many, many, many needs. Okay. So to get back to desire here, where does desire come from? Desire comes from unmet needs. If you have an unmet need, it generates a desire. Uh huh. When the need is met, it feels good, mm-hmm. and that's. And if it's unmet, if you have an unmet need, it feels bad. This is true even of a bacterium. Yeah. So that's another way that desire is, is, is nature. It is our nature as separate beings to have desires. Right. Because it is, it is our nature as separate beings to be incomplete. And desire, then, is the engine that drives us toward completeness. And it is the nature of separate things to want to be complete. And as the Sufis say, mm-hmm. um, all desires are really just one desire. It's the yearning to be reunited with God. Yes. 
Yes. Charles, speak about longing. Can you speak about longing? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess part of it is, is one thing I could say about it is it is the desire to be reunited with God. It's the longing for something that... that I often feel longing. Um, and sometimes I, I project that longing onto my childhood, you know, wanting to go back to this beautiful world that never really existed. Yes. Or onto, you know, a marriage that I was in that was had these beautiful moments, you know, uh, sometimes lasting weeks, but, you know, usually shorter, amid the context of, of more or less misery. You know, we, we were pretty good at making each other miserable, but, but there were these moments that didn't seem like they were... They seemed real, you know? They seemed like they were a promise of what it's supposed to be. Yes. And so sometimes I'll, I'll look back, you know, I tend to be kind of a nostalgic person, and I'll look back, you know, sometimes missing missing those times being married, you know, and then, then I have to remind myself, you know, Charles, you were pretty miserable most of the time. Um, so I'm longing for something that didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. And the same thing when I look back on my childhood, you know, we and, and, and in myths too, you know, there's this, this comes out in myths too, where there's a myth of a golden age at the dawn of history. Right. And we have this longing for something that didn't necessarily exist. And the reason we have a longing for something is that, yeah, it does exist, but it's in the future, not the past. Oh, yeah. Longing draws us toward it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a message from the soul. I see, I see. Well, that brings us to uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, in your book, The Ascent of Humanity, uh, the way I see it is you put together a whole puzzle of things to create a story of our change, of our birthing as humanity. So I would like it if you would speak about the power of story and the power of speaking a different story. Yeah. A new essay coming up on Reality Sandwich soon that's um, talking about this theme. Because, uh, you know, the whole world is created in stories, really. The whole human world. Uh-huh. Um, and you could even you could even say that the physical world, too, is created through stories or, or beliefs, vibrations, words. A lot of Genesis myths mm-hmm. uh, have the universe beginning as a word. How did he create the world? Mm-hmm. He spoke it into existence. Um, and in, in Hinduism, the world is, a, is the manifestation of the sacred syllable, Om. And as human beings, when we create anything with our, unless we do it with our hands, mm-hmm. like you can create some things, you know, by yourself with, with your hands. Mm-hmm. But if you want to create anything that requires coordination of lots of human beings. Yeah. You have to use words. Yeah. Uh, and so, for example, like what does Congress do? Or what does President Obama do? Does he do anything with his hands? Only if it's tapping keys to make words. Basically, yeah. like all of the people that we, that we consider as having power in our world, 
they do nothing to exercise that power but speak. Mm-hmm. Their power is all words. They um, and and or symbols like money also is another story. It's um, a bunch of symbols that we invest with meaning. If uh, you know President Obama wants to start a war, how does he do it? He speaks it into existence. If Donald Trump decides to build a skyscraper, how does he do it? He speaks it into existence very much like Jehovah, you know, there will be a skyscraper here. Right. And then that he's creating a story uh-huh. that assigns roles to other people. And if everybody believes in that story, and they will because he has access to the ritual implement called money, which has the magical power to focus human attention and to coordinate oh. our stories. Mm-hmm. Um, then that, that skyscraper will come into existence because he broke it into existence. So that's like the, the, the power of word, the power of story. The problem that we have today is yes. that we are living in a story. I call it uh, the story of the people that has created the world that we know today. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a hurting world. story of science, you speak about the story of science. Mm-hmm. of, you know, 
what are we here for? What is human life for? Uh, what is the way of the world? These basic myths, they're very powerful. Charles, yeah. talk to us about the story of the Age of Reunion. Yeah, I'm formulating that. Um, and many other people also are speaking stories about what planet Earth will be like, what it will be like to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 50, 100 years from now. One way I kind of summarize it is um, peaceful humanity living in joy on a wild garden earth. Mm. Yeah. The story of the Age of Reunion is based on the story of self that is changing. The old story of self is the discrete separate self. You know, where I'm separate from you, we're two separate beings. I start here and end here. You know, I'm a soul encapsulated in a body. I'm a mind looking out, you know, onto the world. I'm an economic, rational actor. You know, I'm a, an ego, et cetera, et cetera. These separate, separate stories and, and having relationships. And the new story of self is an interconnected self and a larger self that that's not just an intellectual uh, belief that we're all connected or we're all one or something like that. It's, it's a felt experience of unity, which doesn't mean that we lose our separate identities also, but it means that our identity is more fluid. And, yeah, I am like, you know, a skin-encapsulated ego, but I am also a, a family, a community. I am the planet, and we have a felt experience mm-hmm. of, and we, we have this today. You know, sometimes you look into somebody's eyes and you have the feeling that, you know, here's the same being looking at itself yes. through two separate pairs of eyes and we can feel it. And, you know, I think just to touch on, on the Timothy Leary topic we were talking about a little bit, yes. you know, I think that uh, the psychedelics um, came to Earth at the right moment to help accelerate this transition um, where we experience this, you know, experiential sense of self that is expanding and including what we had put in the category of the other. So the the story of self is, you know, I am the sum total of my relationships. This motivates a very different kind of economics, a very different kind of science, a very different kind of medicine, different kind of law, politics, education. It's It's all... It, it all becomes almost the opposite when the self includes the other by degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my economics work, um, I've been researching and writing a lot about gift economics. Yes. Gift societies. Yes. You know, and in gift societies, the, the, the basic premise of conventional economics isn't true. In conventional economics, more for you is less for me. But in a gift society, more for you is also more for me because any good fortune that you have is going to circulate in the gift network and it's going to come to me. Mm-hmm. Potlatch. Yes, in the Native American traditions. Yes, yes, the potlatch is an example of that. You know, and, and so I write about, um, I'm writing about it, um, well, you could say I'm telling the story of an economy that extends the potlatch dynamic into a modern context. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm writing about, you know, how can we reestablish a gift economy in a mass, on a mass scale, you know, because it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's one thing when everybody knows each other in a community and knows each other's needs um, and has, and, and there's these uh, gift networks that are based on kin and based on, you know, who each person individually is. Yes. But it's a different thing to do it um, when you're coordinating the labor of millions of people and building computers and things. Um, in that case, you need money uh, to facilitate the, the bringing together of gifts and needs, uh-huh. which is the, the core of what money is, really. Money at, at its core is a beautiful thing. You know, I need something, and you have that thing. You want to give it to me, but I don't have anything to give back to you. Mm-hmm. Ah, but now I have money, and money says that I gave something to somebody else, and they gave me money as a token of gratitude, mm-hmm. and then I can give you that money instead. So it, money at its essence should make us all richer. Mm-hmm. It should create abundance, but instead it creates scarcity. Why is that, and how can we uh, restore it to being an agent of abundance? That's what I'm working on now, and that's part of the storytelling uh, of a new age. And everybody is te- you know, telling a different aspect of this story, but it all comes down to a new sense of self. Well, I want to say to you that uh, last night when I was reading the last pages of your book, um, I burst into tears. And uh, they were both tears of gratitude and, of course, tears of pain and fear that uh, we wouldn't make it through. Um, What your book created for me was one sentence and uh, I kept saying over and over, I don't want to own anything that somebody else needs. And uh, so it was amazing to me that this, this whole book came to that sentence, profoundly felt within myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I want... um, yeah, the, the, the two kinds of tears, gratitude and... Um pain from the fear that, you know, maybe this won't come to be. What we need today, we need people, not just storytellers, but I guess you could call them story keepers. We need people to to believe, to know, more than just believe, but to know that the more beautiful world our hearts tell us is possible is actually happening. We need people to believe it so completely that they can believe it on behalf of everybody else who does not yet believe it. And to hold, hold that story in existence well, so that it's there uh, to welcome people into when they leave the age of separation in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the story needs to be there for people, to, to, to offer people in the, in the time that we're going through now, the breakdown of stories. Yes. It's important to have story keepers um, who can hold it for the rest. And that's really the purpose of my work is to is to inspire people who are ready to become story keepers. Yes. To inspire them to believe. Um, you know, so, or it's, I guess it's to convert people who are hopeful, who see a possibility into people who know 
everybody else thinks I'm crazy, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's, now is the time that we're getting together. People, you know, the people who are walking around daring, daring to take on this story because it's almost like it's scary because it's so good, you know. It's scary because it's almost like too good to be true. But we're beginning to dare to believe that it's possible. And now is the time where those of us who are potential story keepers get together and encourage each other and reinforce this knowledge in each other and be like, yeah, you, you're, you're right, you know, this, that you've been carrying this for the last 30 years. You were right all along. You're not crazy. It is happening. Mm-hmm. And when enough people hold the space for it to happen, then it will happen. So my, my, I think really what I see, this is cool. That I'm not sure if I've fully articulated this before, but I see my work as, not only holding the story, but also holding the story holders. Gathering the story keepers. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, do you think that the story of 2012 uh, contributes to our reunion? I think that the story of 2012, it really taps into a valid intuition, which is that the world that we have known cannot last yeah. very much longer, and that a profoundly different world will follow it. I don't think that it that necessarily has to happen in 2012, but it might. That'd be pretty cool if it did. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really the same. It's a very similar thought form to the, to, you know, the uh, evangelical Christians who believe that we're in the, the end days. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and they're the same thing. The world is going to fall apart, and a more beautiful world will follow it. Mm-hmm. Same basic story. Let me ask you, uh, perhaps as close to the last question, I've, I've been wondering what it is in your process and your travels and your learning of Chinese in Taiwan that has helped you bring together all these pieces that encompass the uh, story of the ascent of humanity? I think it's just what I'm here to do. I uh, you know, spent many, many years with this question in my heart, uh, basically, why? Why, are, why is it like this? Why has mm-hmm. the world become so ugly? Um, and I couldn't really... I mean, I spent almost, you could say, night and day wondering this, wanting, mm-hmm. wanting, wanting the answer mm-hmm. and reading things and and um, I think if you hold any question in your heart long enough then the answer will come and all of the things that I did all the research and the reading and all that stuff the puzzling that was really, I didn't figure out the answer that way but all of that stuff was kind of a, a uh, ritual that invited, that aligned me with the field of this knowledge uh, and opened me to it. Well, I was, uh, I was feeling that the way you tell the story is what I felt and knew the first time I took LSD. I couldn't put it into words. 
yeah. but yet you have done it. So maybe when you speak about a thread that links you to Timothy Leary, perhaps it's, that's some of what it is. Yeah, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely something there. Um, I uh, had a profound LSD experience when I was 22. Uh-huh. That was, it was, it was, you know, one of the, um, one of the things that showed me, it was one of the things that showed me that, that my intuitions, that the world is much bigger, the universe is much bigger than I thought it was, were true. Uh, I'd always, you know, in my teenage years, you know, college, I had, I kind of half-heartedly participated in the program of life that was offered me. Mm-hmm. If I had put more effort into it, I could have excelled in ways that I did not excel. I just kind of did, you know, enough to get by. I, mean, I was, you know, extremely talented in mathematics, but barely, you know, spent any effort really learning it, you know. And, um, I just couldn't get myself to, to play along with the program. I procrastinated, you know, I just didn't do stuff. And, uh-huh. and I think it's because I sensed that there's a bigger world out there. I'm meant for something more than to be a success in this world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people now are going through a similar process, and they think that there's something wrong with them because they're procrastinating, because they're lazy, because they're depressed, because they're anxious, because they have attention deficit disorder. But all of these things are are really just their rebellion, their unconscious rebellion against the life that's too small for them. And um, so, you know, the, the, the psychedelic experience was something that showed me that I was right. Um, I had some other experiences too that were not, uh, you know, that didn't involve any 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 uh, external chemicals. Um, but a series of experiences that kind of blew open my world. Mm-hmm. But I was just kind of I was primed for them, you know. I was looking for them, mm-hmm. I just, and and they came to me. Right. Right. So. You know, I think um, Timothy Leary, I, mean, I don't know that much about him, but I think that he, on some level he sensed, and I guess he probably wrote about it, and I, mean, he, I know he evangelized it even, that he sensed that, that this is something that's going to change the world and it needs to get out there. And he had some, I don't know, I, I just think that there's some spirit that he and I share. Yeah. I don't know what it is, okay. but there's some spirit that we share. Okay, okay. Like we... Right, right. Yeah. Well, yes. The last question I want to ask you is about your work. And so I want to ask you how The Yoga of Eating, your other book, Uh and Transformational Weight Loss Uh ties in with the ascent of humanity. Yeah, well, The Yoga of Eating I wrote first, um, and that was part of my path to developing these ideas that I've been talking about today. Um, but, but both that and then the, the booklet, the weight loss booklet, mm-hmm. basically it's, it's just a specific application of these general ideas. It's ending the war against nature, i.e. the war against the self, in one realm, the realm of food. Yes. And, you know, because people decide to get healthier, to get thin, and they go on a diet, and it's just more and more control. And it doesn't work because that's exactly what they've been doing their whole lives. They've been trying to control themselves in order to attain goodness just as we control nature ever since the days of agriculture in order to, to make 
universe good, and it doesn't work. Eventually, eventually the control fails, and you know, then and people the, they break their diet, and then um, they conclude they didn't try hard enough, they didn't control themselves enough, so they do more of what of what didn't work, which is insane. And because I saw such a so I wrote the weight loss book, you know, in part because I saw just in front of my eyes, you know, such a tragic, crying need for this information. Yes. So it's just a specific, it's really, it's just a specific application of the of my real work. Okay. That I saw a need for. Okay. That, that's that's all. Okay. So I'd like to say your website again. It's www dot ascent of humanity dot com and uh, as we bring our story around I would like to ask you if there's anything more you'd like to add Charles Eisenstein well um, a, a lot of my for the last two years I've been writing uh, essays about once a month they get published on another website called reality sandwich mm-hmm. and um, there's some a lot of the work on there is Somewhat more more evolved than what I what is in the Son of Humanity book. So if people are feel you know a resonance with what I've been speaking about, you can also look on Reality Sandwich and find my find my um, articles there. Okay, all right. Well, Charles, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I have really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you. Okay. I've enjoyed it too. Good.